This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, and welcome to Past Perfect. I'm Christopher Melke, and this is CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Today we're joined by Dr. Emesha Sharkari Nadju. Dr. Sharkari Nadju got her PhD from the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest in 2008, and currently she works at the Christian Museum in Estragon. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the possibility. So your main specialty, as I've gathered from your uh, CV, is that you have um, done most of your work on um, altarpieces in Transylvania. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. To start off as a point of departure, there are certain parts, fixtures in the medieval church that have fancy names. Um, so what exactly do you mean um, when you say an altarpiece in this question? The English language is, is kind of lucky with this word uh, because you are not saying altar, you're saying altarpiece. In Hungarian or German, there is this expression, practical meaning, winged altar. Okay. In English, you say winged altarpiece, which makes it clear that this piece of art we are speaking about is not the altar itself. Right. The altar, the mansa, the table, is the place where the Eucharist takes place in the Catholic liturgy. The, the bread While and the wine uh, turning into the body. That's right. That's right. While the altarpiece, the retable, with another word, is this piece of art. It can be a panel, a painted panel, or a sculpture, or a composition complete altarpiece with painted panels and sculptures standing on the altar itself. Okay. What purpose does it serve by standing on the altar? Well, it does mainly serve for uh, helping people live this miracle of the Eucharist Mm -hmm. or helping people think about what is happening there, the devotion itself. So help to think about Christ, to think about what happened there around Christ and not think about other things, you know, while sitting there in the church. So a a visual cue almost. That's right, Um, yes. These altarpieces, though, they're very big, Um, or they can be very big in, in my understanding. So when the bread is being raised and when the chalice is being raised, um, doesn't it tend to hide the action of the, the, the priest, the raising of the bread and, and all that? The older pieces themselves usually don't really have to do with these um, oh, okay. with these happenings. They can be indeed quite large, but some of them are, are really quite small. Or at the beginning, there were not necessarily painted panels or sculptures, just uh, some objects like, like uh, candles, uh, lighters uh, put on the altar, which served for some decoration or so. But it was then only later that these altarpieces were developed, so to say. They can, of course, also be wooden altarpieces or uh, some objects put on the altar. But in other cases, they can be painted on the wall behind the altar. So behind the table, these uh, images helping the the devotion. Most of these altarpieces would be wooden then, is that correct? Well, the altarpieces I was dealing with in Transylvania, so this 14, 15, 
16th century all the pieces are wooden. We do have examples uh, made of other materials, stone, for example, in medieval Hungary as well, but not in Transylvania. Well, mainly they are made of wood. Yeah. Okay, so there. Perhaps this is a really silly question, but I um I wanted to cut a couple of technical questions out of the way uh, before we started talking about yeah, really it's a uh, good idea. really really fun questions. I mean, they're made out of wood and they're stone. They're very very heavy. Are they portable at all? Not these ones, no. Okay. There are of course portable altarpieces, but that okay, serve then. a completely different purpose. The altarpieces I am dealing with are not portable at all. I so see. they are really quite quite large, huge in sometimes, and they have been in most of the cases uh, put together at the church, uh, practically not even in the workshop of the painter or the joiner, uh, but but really they're they're at the church exactly because they are so heavy. Okay. Okay. You mentioned um workshops a minute ago and with your book that came out, you know, one of the big things that you focus on is the workshop. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, let's say that I am a village out in Transylvania and I want to have a very, very nice altarpiece for our little church. It's just been renovated and, you know, we figured it could use a little bit of sprucing up in the 15th, 16th century. How does the process of getting an altarpiece inside a church work exactly? Well, that's an interesting kind of question. Uh, you wanting to have an altarpiece <laughs> for a village church. Okay, well, there is, of course, first the commissioner. And actually, this is why I really like altarpieces, because I think the altarpiece is really a kind of a perfect mirror of society of the period. Because, okay. you know, analyzing an altarpiece is not only the art historical analysis, like iconography, style, and so on, but you have to really look at the society behind it, the economic situation behind it. So okay. you, you have to look at the commissioner, who this was, what he exactly wanted to have, uh, where he has perhaps learned, and what did he learn about, which he perhaps wants to have, wants to see on the altarpiece commissioned. You also have to look, of course, at the workshop. And this is one of my favorite points, really, to see how these altarpieces came into being. Mm-hmm. So was it close? workshops where these these altarpieces were coming out so were there workshops where painters joiners sculptors were working together and producing one altarpiece after the other or was it and this seems to me more probable that several masters painters sculptors uh, joiners and so on were just joining for one commission and then they worked separately perhaps with other painters other joiners and so on and this seems to me more probable. When an altarpiece was commissioned, there was always one undertaker mm-hmm. who who had the, the work, who signed the contract, and who was responsible for organizing the whole work. This was, in most of the cases, the painter, like the most important master in the case of an altarpiece. But we do have examples in Transylvania, the case of, of the Biertan Berathalom altarpiece, for example, where the joiner was the person responsible for the whole work. He he got the commission for an altarpiece, the, the whole furniture of the sanctuary practically. So the stalls around the, the door of the sacristy and so on. This was one large commission. And then he had a, a subcontract with the painters, uh, with the sculptors and so on. 
And exactly in this case of the Biertan Berethalom altarpiece, it is most probable that it had to be produced in pieces in the workshop somewhere, perhaps in Sigishwara, in Segeshwar. And then they joined the whole thing there in the church itself because it's really a huge, huge uh, altarpiece. So it couldn't work. So once once way. it arrives at the church, it's like a puzzle that they put together. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that makes a certain amount of sense because if you know you assembled it in a workshop, you'd have to work around, which could be quite a daunting process, I'd imagine. <laughs> That's right, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, um, are most of these local workshops for the Transylvanian altarpieces? Yes, thank you for that question. These are local workshops. There were some ideas earlier in, in the literature dealing with the topics that uh, some of these altarpieces uh, might have been uh, brought from abroad, but this is absolutely not possible. Mm-hmm. Looking at their style, it's absolutely clear that they have relations with each other and looking at the style also makes it possible to contour some workshops. So to see which altarpieces, which paintings could belong to the same painter, to the same workshop. It's very rare that we can see the same hand, so to say, the same same handwriting, if I can use this word (laughs) in this context, on the painting. But we can uh, still state that they belong to the same school, to the same workshop. Uh, working together with different joiners or with different sculptors, but uh, a certain group of painters working together can be very well stated in Sigishwara, in in Segeshwar. So it's quite sure that this town, which was not of the same importance than other towns in Transylvania in this period, like Brasho, Brasov, or Hermannstadt, Sibiu, Nagyseben in Hungarian, in this period. So it was not of the same importance, ecclesiastically speaking, or Mm -hmm. administratively speaking, but it looks like from the point of view of the workshops or the masters, working here, the crafts, it was one of the most important places in Transylvania in the 15th, 16th century. Lots of production going on there. So local workshops, but you were talking about the painters, the joiners. Um, do we have any idea whether or not, you know, these are local men practicing this craft or whether they, do we, do we really know anything about the, the people who were manufacturing these? Are they even if they are local folk, but they learn their trade somewhere else. Well, we have very little information on this. Of course, we do have some sources, some historical sources, but what did help me much more was looking at the pieces, the preserved pieces themselves, and see what their style tells me. So what can be detected on these altarpieces is that these masters or most of these masters were studying somewhere abroad, mainly um, around Vienna uh, or uh, southern Germany. Uh, So the style observed on these pieces uh, shows this direction. Uh, We cannot say, of course, if they were local masters going to Vienna and Germany, studying there and coming back, or if they were German masters not having found uh, work there and coming to Transylvania and organizing a workshop for themselves here. There is this very interesting case of the 
there is a German word for this, the Schottenmaster. So the master of the Scottish monastery from Vienna. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, the altarpiece of the Scottish monastery from Vienna made in the 15th century, around 1469, who seems to be uh, originally from Transylvania. Mm -hmm. So his name was very probably, as uh, lately research has found out, uh, Hans Siebenburger, okay. uh, which means he comes probably from Transylvania and he became one of the most important masters in Vienna in this period, working for the court, for the town, having the most important commissions there. And he might have sent uh, some of his students back to Transylvania, because in Transylvania there is really a very interesting group of altarpieces and wall paintings which can be linked to his style or to this style following him. How oh, very interesting. In the first little section, we were talking about uh, the workshops and the very uh, nitty-gritty aspects of the altarpieces. So now I'm going to unleash all of the questions that I, I wanted to ask the first time around, but uh, felt needed its own segment. And that's, um, what sort of things are on these altarpieces? Okay. <laughs> yes, that's that's a very interesting point indeed. Unfortunately, on Transylvanian altarpieces, there is very rarely some special iconography. So what is usual is that some saints are on the inner part of these wings. And here I remember that I didn't practically speak about the function of these altarpieces in the sense how they were used. So in my case, we are speaking about winged altarpieces, which means that there is a central part, a shrine or um, a central image, a central panel with a pair of wings. In Transylvania, we usually only have one pair of wings in Upper Hungary, for example, but of course in German territories, we have um, several examples where we have uh, two pairs of wings so you can close them once and then the second pair of wings you can also close. Mm. So what we know about this is that uh, they were opened only on large feast days, usually linked to the, the saint patron of the, of the church um, and his day, or Christmas Day, of course, or Eastern or so on. But uh, mainly during the year, they were closed. Okay. So on this closed part of the altarpiece, the outer side, so to say, the workday side, you usually see the passion scenes, mm -hmm. so Christ's passion. And then when you open the altarpiece, there is the more elegant, the more decorated part of the altarpiece where you can have uh, scenes from the life of Mary or the more interesting iconographical uh, scenes or just a series of saints uh, standing uh, or bearing some discussion on these, on these uh, panels. So this is the usual iconography on Transylvanian altarpieces. Okay, then. And um, for the for the variants that happen on the 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 inside of these altarpieces, is there any explanation? Like one community is devoted to a particular saint, or they have a That's relics right. of a particular saint and feel that they need to elevate them, or something like that. That's right, yes. So the, the, the inner part of the altarpieces are always linked to the church 
itself the saint patron of the church uh, so you can uh, usually detect if an altarpiece was commissioned for that church or or you can suspect that it comes from another church because it's not dedicated to the same saint I as see. the as the church so this is uh, one of the very interesting uh, points especially in Transylvania because the altarpieces are in most of the cases not standing at their original place now oh, okay. so they were you know after Reformation, they they changed their places. Some of the Catholic communities bought altarpieces from other communities, which became uh, Lutheran in the in this Saxon part of Transylvania, where most of the altarpieces um, were preserved. A bit of recycling going on, but in a good way. Yeah. The um, are are there any in your opinion that are still in their original location? That's right. Uh, there are lots of lots of oh, still. Good, good, good. It's it's the the largest altarpieces that are at their at their original place. They were the hardest of course, to move. That's right. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Um, so it's for example the already mentioned Biertan Berethalom case of the altarpiece which was which is one of the largest ones in Transylvania there is also a very interesting point in this case because it is put together of two different altarpieces so to say there is a certain part uh, a central part which is earlier dating from the end of the 15th century and it looks like 30 or 40 years later they just wanted to have another uh, even larger altarpiece uh, and they commissioned in 1515 a really large gothic early renaissance altarpiece for the new sanctuary of the church we do not know about the earlier altarpiece if I that see. was really originally from Berethalom or if that comes from another community they just bought you know the central part to make it cheaper mm-hmm. uh, to produce the the altarpiece of the 16th century but we also have other examples in Mediash uh, for example which is also quite a large altarpiece standing at its uh, original place so as I said it's practically the, the those altarpieces which were not so hard to to be transported that could change their places, their location. Um, How visible are the images that you see on these from the audience? Or is it something that for the Passion of the Christ would the people standing way in the back who arrived at Mass five minutes late, would they be able to see it, in your opinion? Yes, that's that's absolutely sure. So the altar pieces are, in most of the cases, large enough okay. for this. So they were commissioned for that place. So they, they had in mind this point, mm-hmm. that they wanted people to see, to understand what is happening on these images. And these images are always showing things which we might not understand anymore, but which was absolutely obvious for people from that time. So the iconography that is something strange for us perhaps today, that was absolutely obvious in most of the cases for the people coming into the church at that time, even if it is some more special iconography, and we do have some of these in in Transylvania as well. 
Now I have to ask, you say something strange. I sent some stories. So what are some sort of strange things that you see? <laughs> Shall I say I hoped so that <laughs> you would put such a question? Okay, yes, of course, we have some stories and this unusual iconographies always depend on the on the commissioner, of course. And you can always suspect that there was something in the life of the commissioner, where he studied, uh, what he saw there, um, that he wanted to have in his own church as a parish of that church or um, or something like that. I, again, have to come back to this much-mentioned Biertan Berethalom example because this is one of the most interesting iconographies perhaps uh, in Transylvania. It is on the upper part, the so-called gable of the uh, altarpiece in the Berethalom case. This is really a huge altarpiece where on this upper part you have another triptych. So you have three panels up there representing, well the central panel is representing a crucifixion where the apostles are standing on the branches of this tree which is growing out of the cross. Okay. While Mary, the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist are standing under the cross watering the cross. Hmm. So this is really a very interesting iconography, having elements which can be detected in the period. But in this complex way, you cannot find it. At least I didn't find uh, another example of this uh, somewhere else. So you have this yeah. living cross element, of course, in, in many places. You have the apostles standing there, but Mary and John standing there and watering the cross this is really an interesting point, I think. That is. I, I cannot honestly think of any sort of parallel example. It's hard. Fair enough. Another thing I do have to ask is you you mentioned the commissioners a little while ago and on in some in some regions uh, in the Middle Ages, whenever there was public art like this was public and functional, I should say, and religious art was commissioned by a donor or a commissioner, usually. In some cases, it's been proven that the little dude in the bottom right corner, you know, dressed in a monk's habits, actually meant to be a portrait of the person um, who was commissioning it. Does that occur in your altarpieces? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Oh, cool. We have portraits of the commissioners. Uh, we have several heraldic signs oh, okay. uh, of the commissioners on the altarpieces either on the central panel of the altarpiece or it can also figure on the lower part, the so-called predella of the altarpiece. Uh, we have such examples on the Mediash altarpiece, for example, where, well, not surely, but we can suppose who the commissioner was. It is probably linked to the Tabiashi family uh, living at this time and, and bearing very important positions in the town of Mediash. But we also have the, the depiction of the patrons in the case of the Malmkrog, Mölnkrav, or in Hungarian Almakerék uh, altarpiece, where the patrons, the donors, are also depicted on the central uh, panel. And we have lots of other examples. What is also very interesting in these uh, cases uh, of the Transylvanian altarpieces is that not only portraits of the commissioners can figure on the panels, but also in certain cases we have the signature of the painter. Oh, okay. Uh, there is this very interesting painter called Vincentius Sibiniensis, a uh, painter coming 
as his signature also says, from from Hermannstadt, from Sibiu. Sibian in Hungarian, who signs his works. So we have uh, several works preserved with his uh, signature. The first of his works, which dates from 1508, he signs together with his father-in-law, uh, Simon Sculptor, the inscription says. So this is one of the interesting examples where a family uh, having two different masters, a painter and a sculptor, work together yeah. on an altarpiece and they even sign. So it's very interesting. Vincentius is probably not the best painter in Transylvania in this period, but his case is, of course, very interesting and really a lucky case for us because we have these signatures uh, preserved. For me, that's the most the most fascinating thing about talking about your work so far is just the fact that, you know, for a lot of people, they look at religious art and they say, oh, it all looks the same. You know, it's all depicting the same thing one thing right after another. And then talking to you about it, though, what's really become apparent to me is um, the very, very deep connections that it has with people and how there are all these many different individual stories connected. That makes it fascinating. I fully agree. Our first two segments, we were talking about um, your work on Transylvanian altarpieces, and I wanted to switch gears a little bit and start talking about your work at the Christian Museum in Estragon. So just a little bit of a backstory. What's what's the story behind the Christian Museum uh, in Estragon in northern Hungary? In my life, you mean, or generally? Uh, sh- shall I generally say? How about words both? About? Okay. First, <laughs> first in general, and then in your life. Okay. So... Um, Some people probably already know that the Christian Museum is one of the largest museums in Hungary outside Budapest. I did not know that. As for for its collection, it's really after the Museum of Fine Arts in Budapest and the, the National Gallery in Budapest, it's on the next place. And as follows, uh, the medieval collection is also very rich at the Christian Museum. It was at the end of the 19th century uh, organized by Cardinal Janos Simor from his private collection and then several other collections were joined to this material, the collection of Arnold Ipoi and so on. So it is really an absolutely rich collection of not only Central European art but also Italian Netherlandish and so on. And of course, not only medieval paintings and, and sculptures, but this is the part I am dealing with there. Okay, so the painted material then, that makes sense. Um, why was Estragon chosen as the site of this museum? Well, because the cardinal was sitting there, okay, <laughs> partly, and there was this original idea of organizing a Christian museum, a museum, museum Christianum, um, and there was a question about where this should be linked to which bishopric. The idea also came from uh, the already mentioned Arnold Ipoi, as his testament uh, says. He didn't know where this should be organized. He was a bishop of uh, Varad, of Oradia mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. this time. But of course, Estergom uh, being a center of the Hungarian ecclesiastic life, being one of the most important or the most important bishoprics also at this 
this time uh, it was somehow logic to set this uh, museum here. Okay, fair enough. And um, so uh, as far as the work you do, I'm dealing with the paintings. Are you more along the lines of analysis and cataloging or are you um, conserving them as well? I'm not conserving. I'm I'm just doing the work of an art historian, and okay. it is, it is also very restricted because this uh, work of mine is a project which um, goes on three years uh, long. It is quite a new thing. It started this January, so I just started working there, and it is a project financed by the the OTCA, which is the Hungarian Fund for Basic Scientific Researches, and this is a postdoctoral. Okay position, so to say. And in this framework, it was only possible to work there on myself. So it was not possible in the frame of this project to work together with restorers or other art historians. So that's why I chose to make a so-called checklist of the Central European medieval material of the Christian Museum, not only paintings, but also sculpture preserved there. Because Of course, ideal would be to make a complete collection catalogue, but this is not the work of one single person. No, no. So... Is, is there any idea how many um, objects are in the collection? Well, the material I'm trying to catalog now uh, is about 200 objects. So let's say it's 100, which is linked to medieval Hungary, mm-hmm. and another 100, which is Austria, German territories, and so on. So this is what I understand under Central Europe I in see. this I case. See, this see. is what I'm uh, working with. It's all mostly religious art as well. So is it the entire gamut, like books and manuscripts and... No. Originally, of course, these collections of Shimor, of Ipoyi, and so on, um, contained all these uh, things, but these were divided, and uh, some of them reached the library, other things reached the treasury in Estergom. What stayed here at the actual Christian Museum is only painting and sculpture Mm -hmm. from several regions, as I already said, and Actually, what I'm trying to do with them is this, I I have been using this word checklist, which practically means a short catalog, not including deep analysis of these objects, because this would require uh, the collaboration of, of other people as well. But what I'm trying to do is really a basic catalog, which contains, um, well, the title of the object, the name of the master, if mm-hmm. we know it, or the, the origin of, of the master, if we don't have any other um, information on him, the dimensions and the material of the object, which are, of course, also basic, uh, the provenience. And here there is already some research to be done because yeah, this sure, is not sure, sure. always clear uh, Then. If we know about documented restorations, this is what I'm listing, or if they are not documented, but some things can be seen on the object itself, uh, then this should also be noted. Uh, There is a really short description of two or three sentences uh, and a bibliography related to this uh, object, uh, more or less an up-to-date bibliography. And then, of course, at the end, this checklist this short catalog uh, should be accessible on the on the internet so oh, okay this should be really useful for for further research well that's what I was going to ask is in terms of publication because it, it sounded to me like you were originally going to be publishing this 
would it be available in print as well as online in your opinion we don't know yet it, it probably see. will be uh, but I think uh, first of all it should be accessible May through online. the through the internet and then we will see what the possibilities are of course also the financial possibilities because sure, if sure, sure. the material is already together then it can be published that's that well, shouldn't be a problem. And accessing material on the internet, I think, is very, it, it's very user-friendly. For instance, CEU Medieval Radio is broadcast on the internet. That's right, yes. Okay, then. And um, I hate to ask this question because I'm very, very sensitive to it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How long do you anticipate this will, um, this will take you? To, to go through the 200-ish objects? Well, in my case, this is um, very easy to answer oh, because okay. because the project is financed uh, three years long. Okay. So uh, at the end of these three years, um, the, the, the catalog should be ready. And I, I really um, hope that it will be ready. At least I'm uh, doing everything to do so. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what is very important from this point of view of the time is that uh, the direction of the Christian Museum, my colleagues there uh, have been really collaborative uh, oh good, good, good. up to now and actually uh, now as well. So the director of the museum, uh, Ildiko Konczak, really quickly understood how important this project is, not only for the Christian Museum, but also for f researchers dealing with this topic or with related uh, topics and uh, also the photographer of the Christian Museum, Attila Mudrak, photographing art objects for ages, <laughs> uh, if I can say so, uh, is, is helping me a lot. So uh, what I forgot to say is that part of this catalog uh, will be the photos uh, which document the actual state of sure. condition of the object and of course also some archival photos if, if they are accessible or if, if uh, there are some which have some additional uh, information. Are most of the objects you're working with in, in good condition? Um, or have they been heavily Victorianized? Well, let's say they are in acceptable conditions. Oh, so okay. most of them are okay. We could already restore them uh, if, if there would be a financial possibility uh, for that. Um, and I really hope that mm -hmm. uh, as a following of this uh, project of mine, we will be able to make um, collection catalog, part of which also some restorational investigations and some restoring sure. work uh, as well. So I really hope that this will be possible. And from the point of view of research uh, of these objects, it would also be very important to, to be able to make these restorational investigations, you know, like infrared photography, thermoluminescent photography, oh, which, sure. which show uh, really things you cannot access in another way. Definitely, definitely. Very cool. And um, aside from going through the checklist, um, are, are, are there any other aspects of, of your own investigation involved in this work? Um, there are some. Uh, I say only some because um, there are practically no Transylvanian objects uh, in the collection of the Christian Museum. Hmm. There are um, mainly objects from Upper Hungary um, and, as I said, Austria and Germany. Now, this is the point where there is still some link uh, to my previous research because there are panels uh, from those Austrian workshops, schools or German workshops and schools uh, where 
so to say, my Transylvanian painters uh, have been learning. So okay. there are some stylistic links to the, the already mentioned uh, Schotten workshop uh, and so on. So uh, there are really some things which are already very exciting for me. Oh, that's very cool. And, and I do have to ask about the, the absence of Transylvanian material. Is it just destruction over the years? No, no, that's, that's mainly because the the collections which form the, the present collection of I the Christian Museum did not contain any objects from Transylvania. So Shimor or uh, Ipoi were not buying in Transylvania, uh, but mainly uh, objects from Upper Hungary or other collections, Italian collections, uh, for example, or, or so on. So they were mainly buying from, from uh, art dealers in Vienna or in Italy or so on. And they already saw the importance of Hungarian medieval art, but they mainly bought or, or um, preserved things from Upper Hungary somehow and, and not from uh, Transylvania. It was already at the end of Ipoi's life that he became um, a bishop in, in Várad, uh, so he did not have any time, you know, to, to purchase uh, things from, from this uh, region. We've had a very interesting discussion uh, on all about uh, religious art and um, religious art collections. And I, I mean, I just wanted to go back uh, to one point we made uh, earlier at the conclusion of the second segment, um, uh, the topic of people. I mean, um, just a very, very, you know, general question, you know, to conclude the show. How do you go about, in your opinion, finding people in this medieval religious art? Well, as I already said, this is the most fascinating part, I think, in art historical analysis. And um, I'm really um, glad that I have learned this already uh, during my university years in Kolozsvár, Cluj, uh, from my professor András Kovács, that you, you never have to look only at the object itself, uh, but you have to look behind it and have a view at all the, the points around it, the society, the economics, the ecclesiastical surroundings, uh, the people who, who were commissioning these objects, why they were commissioning these objects, to try to understand their point, uh, and of course also the people who were making these pieces of art. And then you have really a complex image of of not only that art object you are dealing with, but the whole society behind it, uh, the whole community uh, that had a view of this um, art object at that time. Uh, so this is really a kind of a, an interpretation of the object, uh, which is useful not only for the researcher, but which makes it accessible uh, for non-specialists as well if you present the object in an exhibition, uh, for example, or if you if you try to, to explain the object for, for non-art historians. Uh, these are those parts uh, which can really make it bring them close to you. So um, I really think that it is very important uh, for an art historian to not only deal with the stylistic analysis, the iconographic analysis, but, but take a look at the historical sources, what they say about the people who were working, uh, living around these objects in that period. I, I agree. I think it's very, very fascinating. And um, 
Very, very glad to, to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Alrighty, and for our listeners at home, be sure to tune in uh, to us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Um, be sure to send us an email uh, to medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.